Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Series 2 of Corners of the World. For those of you who are new, Corners of the World is a podcast where I interview experts on football culture in countries unknown to the majority of British fans. This week is the first episode that covers a nation in South America. Venezuela stands out in football amongst other South American nations. This is because they're the only CONMEBOL member that has failed to qualify for a World Cup so far. However, this may not be the case for much longer. Venezuela are currently the highest ranked team that has not appeared at the World Cup finals. As well as this, players are now coming into the senior team that represented Venezuela in the 2017 Under-20s World Cup final. The first time a South American nation that wasn't Brazil, Argentina or Uruguay qualified for the final of an international tournament. Discussing Venezuelan football with me on this episode is Jordan Florit, who has so much expertise on the subject, they wrote the book on it. Red Wine and Arapus, How Football is Becoming Venezuela's Religion, is now available as a paperback and I highly recommend purchasing it if this conversation sparks your interest. I also recommend checking out Jordan's Futvey English podcast to keep up to speed with the domestic league. In this episode, we discuss the fortunes of the Vino Tinto, Venezuela's Barras, as well as the recent astronomical rise in the popularity of the sport since the start of the 2000s. But first, I asked Jordan what got him interested in Venezuelan football in the first place. Yeah, so I became interested in Venezuelan football in 2017, uh, and that was mainly down to the under-20 national team. Uh, they were led by uh, the manager Rafael Dudamel, who began with the under-15s, then the under-17s, into the under-20s and senior team, which he, he led simultaneously. And that generation in 2017 reached the final of the World Cup where they, they lost to England 1-0. Uh, and it was really packed full of, full of exciting talent that had a very open pathway to the senior team, like uh, Wilker Farinas, who's Venezuela's number one goalkeeper in his early 20s, Yangel Herrera, uh, who Manchester City bought uh, that year. He's on loan at Granada at the moment. Um, and Jefferson Soteldo, who's just reached the, the Copa Libertadores final with Santos. Uh, really, really exciting players. Um, and that way that Dudamel came up through the youth teams and was leading the senior team at the same time that's something that that really sparked my interest it seems like a, an obvious thing to do we think at club level about keeping the channel open from academy to first team and not really seen that done like that on the international stage and uh, that that really caught my interest so so that's when my my interest in Venezuelan football began yeah and the under-20s World Cup final in 2017 was the first time a side from South America that wasn't Argentina, Brazil or Uruguay reached the final of any major FIFA tournament. And quite famous that Venezuela are the only South American nation to have not qualified for a World Cup. Do you see this kind of new generation as being able to propel Venezuela to their first appearance at the World Cup? Yeah, when it comes to on-pitch performance, um, I think this is the best equipped Venezuelan generation to, to qualify for a World Cup. There's been strong Venezuelan generations before, but the difference this time is a lot of the Venezuelan players are making it to Europe um, or, or other stronger leagues around the world at an earlier age. They're benefiting from better facilities, better coaching at a younger age. Whereas 15, 20 years ago, Venezuelan players, regardless of how good they were individually, just weren't getting that opportunity to play in Europe at a high level because there was a a strong stereotype uh, of Venezuelan players. And when you think of South America, most people think of Brazil, Argentina. So the national team didn't get the opportunity to play opposition that weren't from South America. So you're playing the same nine teams over and over again. And they, they filled their friendly calendar with playing teams like in the Caribbean, um, occasionally the odd Asian team. 
they didn't really get the opportunity to to demonstrate their talents in in Europe, and that began to change in the early 2000s. So the players that we're we're seeing now really benefited from a boom in Venezuelan football between 2000 and 2007. Um, when they hosted the Copa America. And what we're seeing now is the players born in those years uh, that have grown up with a strong football culture in the, in the country really benefiting. Uh, so I think now the generation, whether it's the most talented Venezuelan generation or not, is up for debate. But what isn't up for debate is, is they're the best equipped with the best chances. Yeah, so how do players these days kind of progress through Venezuelan football? Is it academies to other South American countries after they break into the uh, clubs domestically and then they dream of Europe or is it a bit of a different fluid process that they get into professional football through? To answer the first part um, straight away, the, the progression is um, normally through, there's, ne- there's a loose academy system. It's professionalising more, but traditionally, one of the problems with Venezuelan football is the clubs haven't been clubs, they've been teams. So there's not really been foundation, they're little more than just a team. Uh, in the past, 20, 30 years, numerous Venezuelan clubs have come in and fallen out of existence. Uh, there's only a handful of clubs that you could buy by European or even by the, the best South American standards would, would call them professional in terms of having strong facilities, strong youth culture. So a lot of these players will be playing in private academies or, or just soccer schools until the ages of 15, 16, when then the top teams would pick them up for, for nothing, having not really developed some teams they've changed their approach in recent years but traditionally that's been the most common route um in the the in living memory in recent history so it's actually quite interesting how the league has encouraged young players to come through uh, since 2007 when they hosted the copper america a lot of money was put into facilities new stadiums upgrading older stadiums um and one practical rule they brought in was the 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 juvenile rule basically uh, which basically it stated that every team must start with at least one under 20 in their lineup and if they're substituted has to be for another under 20 so lots of young players were getting lots of first team minutes which led to improved performances at youth level obviously the the men's team at under 20 reaching the final but the women's team had the same rule brought in and experienced similar success um the the under 17s finished in the women's game finished fourth at two consecutive world cups they won two south american championships back to back unbeaten um so these rules had a real measurable impact we've seen just in the past two weeks uh, new york red bulls in mls have bought a player direct from a private academy in Venezuela. He's never played professional football, turns 18 in a month or so. He's only ever played for a private academy and they've given him an international slot. Teams in MLS can only have so many foreigners. Um, So to give an international slot to a player that's only just turning 18 in the next week uh, is is really indicative of the quality that can come directly out of private academies, not even professional clubs in Venezuela. So do you think that this new generation over the next decade are going to be able to provide them with better results in the Copa America? I know that results started picking up in the last decade and they reached the quarterfinals. Do you think that they'll be able to take them further in that competition as well as possibly to the World Cup? Yeah, what it is, is on pitch, they are, I think, right now in the top five teams uh, in Combable, which is what's needed to qualify for uh, um, the World Cup or the World Cup playoff. 
um, against uh, the other confederation. The problem that holds Venezuela back um, and has held Venezuela back in the past 18 months, again, is the, the off-field activities of the federation holding back the potential that the country has. Um, so it really depends how much of that can be overcome and resolved. At the moment, the Venezuelan Football Federation is in the hands of a FIFA committee. They basically took control of the FEF. Fresh elections are being held um, in the next month or so. Uh, so it, it's really about the federation professionalising, being transparent, uh, ha having that organisational structure that will allow the, the national team to just focus on what's going on at the pit, on the pitch. Yeah. Um, and domestically, which teams are like the biggest hitters, the ones that regularly win the league, qualify for continental competitions? So the two, the two biggest clubs in, in terms of trophy hall uh, is Caracas Football Club um, and Deportivo Tachira. Caracas most recently won the league in, in 2019. The 2020 season was won by Deportivo La Guaira, who were only founded uh, just over 10 years ago. Um, so they will be going straight to the group stages of uh, Copa Libertadores this season, along with Deportivo Tachira, who finished runners-up. So Caracas and Deportivo Tachira are historically the two biggest clubs in the country. And they, they're the ones that have had the, the most success uh, in the Copa Libertadores. Caracas won. So Caracas reached the quarterfinal in uh, 2009, I believe. Um, Estudiantes de Merida, which is probably the third or fourth biggest club in Venezuela. They reached the quarterfinals in 1999 as well. Uh, that's the furthest Venezuelan teams have gone in, in Copa Libertadores in the format that we, that we all know. Yeah, and how much attention is there for this domestic league in Venezuela? Is there big support for it from locals or is it still that there's a lot of attention for other leagues throughout South America and Europe? Yeah, so it's sort of uh, how I described it in the book. It's sort of like um, a, a love affair. Um, a lot of people in Venezuela watch the European leagues because you know, it's attractive, it's exciting, whereas the, the domestic league is more like the long-suffering wife and, and Europe is the, the mistress that, that they look to for entertainment. Uh, so you've got like a real hardcore, devout followers of, of the national league, um, but the access to European football as well is a big pool. You can get access to European football, MLS, um, Argentinian league, the Brazilian league, for a dollar, a couple of dollars a month. Like, it's not the prices we pay in England for Sky and BT. Uh, so when you can access football so cheaply and it's, you know, undoubtedly a higher quality, it really competes with the National League for people's attention. But Venezuela has an increasing relationship with, with football um, and that has been re replicated in the league in, in recent years, even though attendance is are low for economic reasons in terms of stadium attendance. Yeah, and do you think like this growing support for football in Venezuela is like a new thing that's come out of nowhere or has there always been this sort of undercurrent of support for football which may have come second to baseball in the past that's just coming to life now? Yeah, it's only, it's only really been prominent uh, to the point where it's, it's levelling, if not overtaken, baseball for popularity since the, the turn of the century, since 2000. Before then, there was a, a professional league. The professional league was set up in like the early 50s. And like many countries in South America, the first game of football took place in like the eight, late 1800s. Uh, a PE teacher from Wales was the organiser of it over there working potentially as a language teacher at one of the mines. But yeah, it, it's, it's interesting how, despite the fact that they've had a professional league for 
you know, since the 50s, so, so 70 years, a lot of the clubs that had the success in those first 50 years were settler teams. They were made for European communities that were living in Venezuela for work. Uh, so you had teams like Deportivo Italia, uh, Deportivo Galicia, uh, CD Portuguese. So these clubs were really only built for the European communities whilst they were there. So a lot of them vanished. The popularity of football now is uh, fair to say a meteoric rise since 2001, which is when Richard Paes became the national team manager uh, until 2007. He stood down shortly after they hosted the Copper America, which was the first time that they'd got out of the group stages um, in their history. They went 40 years without winning a game in, in Copper America uh, between 67 and 2007. Um, and then four years later, they, they reached the semi-finals where they only lost on penalties to, to Paraguay. And football really has become one of the few positives that the, the rest of the world see from Venezuela. And I think that's another reason why it's growing in such popularity. Uh, it allows a, a positive representation of Venezuela on the international stage. And people are really seeing the, the, the benefits of that. They, they rally behind the national team in a way that... Venezuelans don't have many common causes to rally behind. Do you think that this support in Venezuela for football is nationwide or is it concentrated in cities and certain areas of the country? There are uh, football mad areas that, that undeniably have a better footballing culture. Deportivo Táchira, which is on the border with Colombia, have a very, very strong football culture. So does uh, the city of Merida, where Estudiantes are based. Uh, whereas Caracas... Other places in the country tease them for not really having a football culture, despite the fact like four or five of the teams in the top division come from Caracas. And, and Caracas obviously being, Caracas Football Club being the most successful team in the country. Uh, but obviously it's also had a lot of baseball. It's the capital of the country. Whereas it was traditionally the, the Andean cities in the country that had the strong football um, atmosphere and environment. Yeah, and do you think this helps create good rivalries like when they play in the domestic league these clubs that there's this kind of bitter we like football more than you sort of rivalry and that helps create better atmospheres yeah between Deportivo Táchira and Caracas which is the the Clásico Moderno like the the modern derby that that is very much it despite them being like geographically 12 13 hour drive away from each other before then the real derby was between Deportivo Táchira and Estudiantes de Merida two Andean um, teams that were based still four or five hours away from each other but along the Andes and with with different cultures in football and, and outside of football. You then get the local derbies um, that, that have existed for, for regional purposes being close to one another um, and historically the, the derbies that were based around you know which European community was behind the club. So are there big traditions pre-match for these clubs, post-match? Like, um, I don't know, well, in England, obviously, it's sort of going to the bar and then walking to the stadium from there. Is there a kind of Venezuelan equivalent? Yes, they've got a really strong fan culture. Uh, fan culture, their, their supporter groups, you know, in Europe, people use the term ultras and obviously England traditionally had hooligans. And in South America, they're called badders, B-A-R-R-A, um, big culture that, Argentina was probably the, the, the pioneers of, although uh, clubs in Uruguay will contest that they were the pioneers, etc. But there's a, there's a strong badder culture in, in Venezuela that shares a lot of characteristics with Colombian badder culture. Um, they, a lot of them are traditionally marginalised from the rest of society, working class perhaps in poverty, but they do a lot for their, their communities outside of football, very community focused. 
Um, we've had the women's tournament in Venezuela playing uh, for the past two weeks and the Caracas FC batter uh, w- were there cheering the girls on. Regardless, like a lot of these batters will get behind any sport that that institute represents, be it women's football, men's football, the volleyball team, the basketball team, the baseball team. Uh, it, it, it's just a pride in the institution. Um, you then also get the traditions of the the sport, the teams, the players themselves. For example, when a player makes their debut in the first team, a young player makes their debut in the first team, the senior players will give them a, a terrible haircut with a pair of razors, uh, shavers. So you have 17-year-olds making their debut with chunks of their hair missing, um, like a baptism of fire kind of thing. Yeah, so Barra's kind of supporting women's football in uh, Venezuela as well. So has women's football also experienced like, a similar rise in support as men's football? Is that kind of come with it as well yeah 100 percent uh one thing that's massively helped is that introduction of the rule in 2007 which was also applied to the women's game and you had a really strong strong football culture in in women's football emanating from caracas uh, and caracas football club uh, you had in the early 2010s a 12 year old debuted for caracas women's in the copa libertadores she's got a guinness world record for that she's still only like 21 now and the first ever Copa Libertadores, Caracas entered a very young team with lots of young players in. Uh, and a lot of these players were playing senior national team football by the ages of 17, 18, 19. Um, so the, the women's game has really strengthened. Um, the league turned professional in 2015, I think, or 2016, but was massively hit by COVID and massively hit by teams, a number of teams really treating women's football like a an obligation rather than a passion. So for example, to have comable membership. So if you want to be playing in like the Sudamericana or the Libertadores, should you qualify, one of the requirements is you have to have a women's team. Um, so there was some sad points last season in the meetings between the, the women players and the union where players were airing grievances where they'd they'd literally been told by members of the club's hierarchy like you know we only have a women's team because we have to like we're not interested kind of thing but the nation has massively got behind women's football in Venezuela in 2016 when the under 17s finished fourth in the world cup uh, there was a a whole documentary film made about that generation Um, the country really rallied behind them It, it was crazy you were getting you know turnouts that you'd associate with a a men's world cup for an, an under 17s women's world cup it, it was really a, a rallying point uh, and a moment of unity for the country and there was some real standout players in that team like Dana Castellanos who's now at Atletico Madrid uh, Veronica Herrera who's in her last year of study in the US and will likely move to Europe at the end of this year uh, then Yeliani Moreno who's at Tenerife Danielska Rodriguez who's at Braga um, and Sandra Luzardo who plays for Alhamar in Spain so um, you've got a lot of young Venezuelan talent playing their football in the, the Spanish leagues now. Yeah, and you've mentioned that you know football's been a good uniting force for Venezuela throughout the last kind of five years, where there have been quite a few well-documented social issues. Do you think that in the future that's going to be something that's always going to be there throughout Venezuela's struggles? Yeah, so the, the difficulty with, with um, Venezuelan politics at the moment is a lot of people have lost uh, any hope that Juan Guaido, who self-declared as, as president in 2019, is ever going to take power. A lot of them just see him as maybe a different political colour, but just as bad uh, as Nicolas Maduro for people that are, are that way politically inclined. It doesn't look like anything's going to change anytime soon. One thing that has happened um, 
in the past 12 months is the, the dollarization of the Venezuelan economy. Uh, it's now become like legal tender within Venezuela. Um, whereas before there were like black markets for the dollar and, you know, their currency was, was devalued massively, like massively. When I was in Venezuela, I, the first day I arrived, $1 was worth 18,000 bolivars. I, in the 15 days that I was there in 2019, it went up, the price went up by about 250%. And then it came back down again um, to, to 22,000 by the time I left. So that it was such a fluctuating, volatile economy that was already like a thousand percent inflation rates. That's stabilized a little bit in the past few months with the introduction of the dollar. But I don't think anything will change in the country politically in, in the next couple of years unless something uh you know that we're all blindsided to at the moment happens so hopefully there'll be something like a copper america win or a world cup qualification yeah they say like you know it allows us to dream um is is one of the the, the common mottos that sort of comes behind venezuelan football um and and helps uh sort of as a rallying point for for the country a lot of there's there's quite a bit of political involvement in venezuelan football as well and obviously hosting the Copper America in 2007 was an opportunity for the country to, you know, put its political weight behind football too. Um, and there's a large part of that that still exists today. Um, but, you know, football is, is always going to be the people's game. Politics comes and goes and, you know, politicians around the world have always tried to use sport for their own game. Um, and yeah, Venezuela's no exception. Well, the one thing that I think they've definitely got going for them is one of the best nicknames of any national team, uh, Red Wine. Where does that come from? Uh, so there's a, a few origin stories on that um, for their nickname, La Vino Tinto, but the, the most commonly ascribed to one is the, the, the colour of the shirts, obviously, but where that shirt and the colour came from uh, is where the story lies, really. And it's that you know, they arrived at a tournament without their own like football kit. So they used the... the the, basically the PE kits of, of one of the military wings, uh, which happened to be that colour. Uh, it stuck with them um, and yeah, they became the red wine. Fantastic. Well, hopefully uh, the red wine will be on the uh, international stage at some point in the next couple of years. Very much hope so for Qatar. Yeah. Yeah. So are they still hoping to get the qualification done for the 2022 World Cup then? Yeah, so there was it started badly with losses to Colombia um, and Paraguay. The, the loss to Colombia, they were awful, really. Um, it was the first game of Jose Pacero, their the new manager, a guy from Portugal, um, who used to be the understudy to Carlos Carreros at uh, Real Madrid. Also a manager in his own right, managed quite a few of the big teams in Portugal. Uh, but the, the, the thing is, he'd been in charge for let's say 10 months when his first game came up. But obviously in that time, they played no friendlies. They hadn't had any training modules together all because of COVID. Uh, so that first game against Colombia was, was abysmal. There were improvements against Paraguay and very unlucky to lose. Paraguay sucker punched them with a goal very late on. Venezuela missed a penalty towards the end, had a goal disallowed debatably. Uh, but then in their third game, they, they turned it around. They beat a, a decent Chile side 2-1. Um, they took the lead. Chile equalised and then Salomon Rondon scored with about 10 minutes to go. Uh, and, and people are starting to think that although they lost the first two, so they're, they're two losses and one win, there's been marked improvement from game to game. Um, the manager clearly has a style of football he wants to play. Um, so there's definitely hope. There's a lot of South American teams, national teams right now that are sort of at the end of a generation, bringing in a new generation. 
generation some have off uh, obvious deficiencies um so yeah they're certainly not out of it they're three games into a, an 18 game table right well uh, i think we'll leave it there so thanks very much jordan no worries thank you for having me on as mentioned before jordan's book red wine and arapus how football is becoming venezuela's religion is now available to purchase in paperback and as an ebook thanks very much for listening to this episode and i hope you come back next week for another in the meantime, you can check out past episodes from Series 1 on the URB podcast page of your favourite streaming service, and be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at CornersOTWorld.